ACAST. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest is Mr. Bob Johansson. Bob has been helping organizations around the world prepare for and shape the future for more than 30 years. He previously served as president of the Institute for the Future, a nonprofit organization and the world's leading futures think tank dedicated to uncovering the critical new insights that lead to action for a more sustainable future. There, he founded its program of research on emerging technology horizons. He has written numerous books on leadership and change management and led workshops at a wide range of corporations, including P&G, Kellogg's, Disney, Intel, Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, McKinsey, and McDonald's. He received his Ph.D. from Northwestern University and holds a Divinity School degree from Crozer Theological Seminary. We're going to talk a little bit about his new book today, uh, Full Spectrum Thinking, How to Escape Boxes in a Post-Categorical Future. Dr. Johansson, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited by this one because I, I like the... I like the focus on on forecasting and looking into the future uh, that that this uh, this venture has, and, and basically that your life's work has had. So uh, I'm really interested to to see where this discussion takes us today. Good, glad to be with you. Let's jump in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and start you off where I start everybody. When you hear the phrase "burden of command," what does that mean to somebody like you? So I'm a future back 
person. So I'm a humble futurist and I focus my life 10 years ahead looking back. And I'm convinced that the next decade in particular, moving from the crisis we're in now out to a very uncertain future, that kind of future is going to require us to be very clear where we're going, but very flexible how you get there. So to me, burden of command is more like being very clear about direction. That's the command. And the burden, you know, burden sounds like a negative, and it is in a way. It's a responsibility that leaders ought to be the source of clarity, the source of clarity. So it is a burden. Um, you could also, you mentioned I went to divinity school. Um, you could also think of it as a calling. You know, it's a, a calling to the future. So to me, burden of command means the voice of clarity, the commander's intent, the mission command, the flexive command. It does not mean telling people what to do. It does not mean command and control. That just won't work in this kind of future. You've got to be very clear where you're going, but very flexible how you get there. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love that because you were right. Command and control, you know, I mean, there's a big argument to may, be made has command and control truly ever worked in history? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, because when you really study some of these, uh, especially some of these military leaders where everybody kind of pins command and control on, there was a lot of what we call today soft skills that those leaders had. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. Uh, but that also gets amplified in the future world where we're all connected by this very distributed network technology and you know my forecast there is that anything that can be distributed will be distributed so it's very hard in this world to control much of anything because we're driven we're connected we're linked by these networks the internet being the core uh, where it's a network with no center it grows from the edges it can't be controlled it can be guided again with commander's intent uh, but it can't be controlled. Uh, so you need to figure out how to lead in these shape-shifting organizations. Um, and it's very different than a hierarchical organization. So unfortunately now, m many organizations still have very traditional hierarchical org charts, organization charts, where the future world, um, our organization charts are going to be animated. In other words, we're going to be shifting who's in control in which situation, uh, more like a fishnet lying on a dock and you pick up a node and a temporary hierarchy forms and then you put it down, pick up another node. That's the kind of burden of command that we need to understand. It's much more distributed authority um, and much less command and control. Mm. No, I, I really like that because I think that's another aspect of, of military leadership that a lot of folks uh, get wrong. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, there's there's that, I mean, every, you go into any uh, unit HQ and they're going to have the org chart from the C, uh, CO and, and all the subsequent layers. But the one thing that makes military leadership kind of special, if you will, is this idea that everybody is a leader at some point in time in their specialty. And you're expected uh, to take on a followership role when necessary, no matter what your rank is. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I'm not a military guy by background, but I happened to be at the Army War College in Carlisle the week before 9-11. And I went with a group of senior Deloitte partners and some CEOs. And it ended up changing my life because I've learned so much from them. And I brought back groups of executives to Carlisle now um, 15 times. Uh, and we do three-day staff rides and wargaming exercises and basically learning and exchanging between business and military. And um, in the past few years, I've started teaching there now, and I teach the new three-star generals five at a time. They read this book, Full Spectrum Thinking, uh, and then we seminar five at a time on the emerging future world where, where clarity will get rewarded, but certainty certainty will get punished. And that goes back to burden of command. Burden of command understands the sophistication of the times we're in now, the nuances of the times we're in now, the brittleness of the times we're in now, if we try to control it, if we try to force it, if we try to command and control it. So, you know, that's what I mean by the fact that the future will reward clarity, but punish punish certainty because certainty is it's just too brittle uh, and we've got to get a more flexible idea and i've gotten to work with uh, general stanley mccrystal and his concept the way he talks about it is is teams of teams mm -hmm. um, i call it shape shifting organizations but that's basically the kind of climate we're in now we we need teams of teams and we need leaders who lead from the foundation uh, and give that clarity, that envelope of clarity, within which people can thrive and improvise. Yes, I mean General McChrystal. Um, you know, he he's one of my. I've, I've got a list of uh, unicorn guests, <laughs> and, and he's <laughs> one that I'm. I really want to try to get on here, but uh, oh, that'd be good. Well, I'll, I'll link it to oh, him, and he oh. he's he's been uh, he's been terrific and has been a mentor to me. Oh no, I, I can imagine. I mean, he's. Uh, he's got a, a TED talk, and I'll, I'll probably link it in the show notes to this, but it, it talks about the challenges that he faced uh, leading coalition forces in this technological era that we're in. And, and I can see, I don't know if you all worked together before he was in that position or after, but I can see through that talk, now that you mentioned that, kind of a lot of these concepts uh, uh, that you're talking about here, because you talk about having to overcome the, the, the cultural aspects and the technological aspects. And, and, and it, you can't, uh, did you ever watch Star Trek? Oh yeah. <laughs> I grew up with Star Trek. So, so it, okay. So it, this is what it always like reading a book. It kind of reminded me of is like there, there's that saying uh, some people are playing chess, other people are playing checkers. What it sounds like with, with what you're talking about here is some people are playing chess and some people need to be playing tri-level chess. Yeah, trilobal chess, and I and I, I would take it even further that you need to be playing a, a kind of three dimensional video game kind of chess. You know, so you're you're in three dimensions, but you're also animated. You're also digitally enhanced. And uh, General McChrystal did an endorsement blurb for full spectrum thinking, um, and his his kind of take that he talks about is the need to understand the situation first. And then the need for kind of daily briefings, daily, this is where after action reviews come in. And then the flexibility of execution and the you know, challenge, and, and it was a challenge for him too, is how to stay within the envelope of clarity um, that 
is above you. So in his case, it was the president. Um, and, you know, that's that's really the challenge, I think, for today's military uh, is, you know, they get the need for clarity and the need for commander's intent. Um, I'm not sure our politicians always get it. I mean, oftentimes our politicians of either party are very certain, but they're not very clear. Right. <laughs> and you know, I'm I, I'm I'm a futurist. I'm not an expert in the president. I don't I don't talk about politics. But when I get to Washington to work with the new generals, I empathize with that difficulty because you know people in this time especially during a crisis they want certainty they they want people to say this is it but there isn't certainty right. <laughs> so we want certainty but we need clarity well and that's exactly it and it, it's kind of interesting cuz we were always taught uh, you know in the marines we were always taught what they call the 70% solution yeah, yeah. and yeah exactly and, yeah because if you wait for 100% of the information a, I don't think that can ever happen because as soon as you get close to 100%, some percentage of what you already knew is outdated. Yeah, you're exactly right. And in a crisis period, it may be even less than 70%. Right. But you you know, you know, still have to act. Yes. And, and that's the uh, – so you mentioned after action reports. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because this is the one thing that kind of drives me batty in the civilian world whenever – you know, because my, my, uh, my business partner at the uh, – my business partner at the leadership phalanx, uh, he's a former uh, uh, soldier, and uh, we talk about after-action reports, and we get this kind of blank stare as why would we waste time on something we've already done? And it's, you learn so much by reliving what just happened. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, we're Institute for the Future is based in Palo Alto, right in the center of Silicon Valley. And we grew up with, with Silicon Valley. We were there before it was called that. Um, we're the longest running futures think tank in the world now. And the principle that drove Silicon Valley is, is actually very much in the spirit of after action reviews. It's fail early, fail often, fail cheaply. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I mean, because, you know, and, and I've said this on this podcast a couple of times, you know, one of the first pieces of advice I got from my, my senior drill instructor when I got to Paris Island, and, and I didn't fully grasp it at the time. Of course, I was, you know, 18 years old. There was a lot of stuff I didn't fully grasp at that time. But he said, <laughs> right. the only bad mistake is one you make twice. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, okay. So the book... And again, I uh, want my listeners to to go out and, and grab this because it's a very interesting read. It, it you really, I, I, again, I like the future aspect because you look at leadership, you look at development, you look at all these things in in a very unique way. But one of the things that that I uh, that I like is right at the beginning. Now I'm somebody who likes history, um, but you make a statement: the past cannot continue. Uh, what do you mean by that? I think the period we're in now contains some core variables, let me call them, that that really are not sustainable. And there, there are three major external future forces that are bigger than all of us um, and cannot be controlled, but also cannot be continued in the same way. The first one is the rich-poor gap. 
Um, it, we've got a lab at the Institute for the Future called the Equitable Futures Lab. And before the COVID crisis, before the racial justice crisis, they determined that roughly half of Americans have zero assets, mm -hmm. zero assets. So it isn't just having a job, it's having assets that grow faster than wages. And that's worse now after COVID and after the racial justice crisis kind of inflamed and are still burning actually. Right. Um, so that's not sustainable. Something has to give on that. We can't go on that way. The second is, is global climate disruption. Um, pandemics are directly linked to global climate disruption, this one in particular. Um, and, and we've ignored that. We've put aside those issues and now we're paying the price and it will pay the price going forward. It can't continue in this way. Uh, and then finally, um, cyber terrorism and cyber warfare um, are very difficult to manage using traditional, I mean, symmetrical warfare techniques do not work, as you know. Right. Uh, right. And this is asymmetrical warfare. This is very different um, than conventional symmetrical warfare used to be. So those, uh, those are three major areas of disruption over the next decade, none of which is sustainable in the current model. So we need to figure out a way to think about them differently. And that's what I call full spectrum thinking, where you think across gradients of possibility, seeking clarity, but resisting resisting the temptations of certainty. So you want to see across this gradients of possibility and avoid these binary, these simple, simplistic either or choices, or it's either this or it's either that. We have to think across gradients. And the good news is the tools for doing this are so much better now. And over the next decade, they're going to get so much better yet. Uh, big data analytics, big data visualization, gameful engagement, neuroscience, machine intelligence, machine learning. We've got tools that are getting so much better. All those tools have been around a long time, but they're finally, they're finally practical. And that's going to help us be full spectrum thinkers to face up to this really difficult future. It's what the Army War College calls the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and it's going to get worse. Uh, absolutely, there's a there's a great quote. Uh, it's been said by a couple of different people in different ways, as most quotes have. But uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, he had a quote. He says, "As the areas of our knowledge increase, so do the perimeters of our ignorance." And, and, and I love that because it's true. The, the more we know, the more we're just understanding how little we know. Uh, and, and, and there was a recent article, and I'm not sure if you saw this, uh, but it, it, I may be messing up the title here, but it essentially said, I was talking about the Taliban, and it said the Taliban is no longer considered a terrorist group, but an ideology. And, and I think that is such an important distinction because you can defeat a group but you really cannot defeat an ideology. And and that's pretty scary when you think about that, right? Right. No, it definitely is. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned the Taliban. You know, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, funded an effort just a few years back now 
because the Taliban stories were working more convincingly to the Afghan people than the American stories. Right. And, and they did something really interesting. They funded a group of neuroscientists and a group of master storytellers. And they explored why was it that, or why is it that the Taliban stories work better than the American stories? And what they concluded was fascinating methodology. They had master storytellers tell stories to people while they were laying in MRIs with their brains being scanned mm -hmm. to just show how our brains react to stories. And the big conclusion was our brains are wired for stories. And if they don't hear stories, they make them up. Mm -hmm. They make them up. So we have to be great storytellers. And then they went back and they broke out what are the elements of a good story. Uh, and the way they played that out was the, the good story has to be have something, something a person in that that, can, that you can empathize with. Something bad has to happen to that person. And they tested something good, something bad. Having something bad happen to that person was much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And then there has to be somebody to blame. And with the Taliban stories, it was always the Americans. Right. Right. And then there has to be an action that you can take in response. So, you know, that's how ideology is born. It's born out of a good story uh, that touches people, that causes them to get engaged, that causes them to be committed. And the Americans just weren't telling good enough stories. <laughs> and it wasn't just about the fight. So it's gotten better now, but it's still really a challenge. But it, but it is to me that principle of our brains are wired for stories. Um, if they don't hear stories, they make them up. That's, that's really my job as a futurist too. It's to tell stories about the future that provoke your insight. You know, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to say, here's the story of the future that's emerging provoke your insight that leads to more informed decisions, more readiness for the future. Even if you can't future-proof yourself, you can be more or less future-ready. No, I mean, that is extremely, uh, I like what you just said there, and it reminded me because I love to tell stories. Like, that, that's kind of what my partner says. I'm the storyteller of the group, right? He, he's a facts and figures person. I'm a storyteller. Uh, but what you just said reminded me, I can never remember the name of the dam. But it was early on into our invasion in Iraq, and uh, there was a army unit that was sent to take over this dam because we had received intelligence. It was one of the few uh, dams that we could get uh, tanks and, and heavy uh, armor across. And we had received intelligence that if we invaded, that the Iraqis were going to blow this dam, and there was a village downstream that was going to get wiped out. So we sent a group in to secure the dam, and they did. But shortly after the village found out what was had happened, they started firing on the soldiers at the dam. And the soldiers, they couldn't figure this out. They're like, we came here. We saved you. If they had blown this dam, your village would be annihilated. You know, they're having this internal dialogue, right? Well, what they had found out was, you talk about the message, the Iraqis had told the villagers, the Americans are going to come take control of this dam and blow it up and flood your village out. So the villagers thought we were there to blow the dam up instead of save them from getting uh, submerged by the uh, dam being blown. We had the intelligence of what was going on, but the Iraqis controlled the message 
and told the village that we were the bad guys. And we sustained more casualties because of that, because we didn't seize the message, so to speak. Yeah, it's so sad because it requires trust, first of all, and then it requires a, a credible story within within that. Yeah. So um, have you, are you familiar uh, with James Carr's and finite and infinite games. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. So, see, I, I've asked a few people this, and I think you're the first person who's really uh, answered in the affirmative. And, and and I love, I love that concept, right? And, and to me, that sounds like a lot of what you are into is is playing the infinite game, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Uh, so, so to me. Um, we use the term gameful engagement mm-hmm. and we define it as emotionally laden attention. And then if you bring in digital tools with digital amplifiers. So what I'm forecasting in the book is what we think of today as video games. 10 years from now, that's going to be the most powerful learning medium in history, mm-hmm. in history. So it's true that many of today's video games are too sexual and too violent. Try to look past that to the medium of gaming. And here you all in the military were way ahead of us in business with wargaming. You know, that's that's practicing. You know, it gives you the the ability to uh, be killed without having to die. Right. <laughs> Very powerful learning. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, I was when I served, a lot of that stuff was in uh I'll just say the infancy, <laughs> you know, it was, you, you had to forgive a lot of uh, reality to, to get immersed to that level. But, but absolutely, I've seen some of the stuff today that, uh, you know, I've got some cousins that, that are in the army and, and Navy and some of the simulators that they can run through and the environments that they can be placed in thanks to, to high level virtual reality. It is kind of scary how accurate that stuff can get now. Yeah, it's very good. I've, I've been to the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert, the Army's National Training Center. And I, I came away thinking of it as the world's largest video gaming parlor. You know, it's about the size of the state of Rhode Island. It has real tanks, real helicopters, real Afghan actors. Um, and it's very realistic. I mean, basically, you're playing a game for 24 hours a day for two weeks. And most people lose uh, because it's designed to be harder than real warfare. So it's it's very powerful learning. It's much harder to do something of that scale in business, but we're getting much better at it now. Well, yeah. I mean, and even with the look at the financial cost of doing something like that, I mean, it's it. you're right. It's a lot easier to fail when you've got the government underwriting your failure versus real lives and real jobs being on the line. But there are ways for business to to do that type of gamification, right? Oh, yeah. And especially um, with digital aids now, you can do it much cheaper than you could earlier. And, and Fort Irwin does, that's really a physical, it's very realistic in terms of the physical. It isn't just virtual. Um, I think you can, If you, a better example probably is pilot simulators. You know, those began as... Um, physical pilot simulators that were very expensive to build and were used for pilot training. Now, um, the, the flight simulators on, on laptops or even in video game playing 
um, equipment or even, even on mobile phones uh, is really, really good. <laughs> yeah, it, it is scary how, uh, how good, in, in such a short period of time, how good that technology has become. I mean, I saw a, uh, it was a graphic that showed the, the computing power in the average iPhone and that we hold in the palm of our hand today. And it was, what, 50 years ago would have essentially taken up like two or three full warehouses. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's really amazing. I tell the story in the book of the, um, the maintenance worker um, for Alaska Airlines who stole a plane uh, from SeaTac Airport just a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and he stole the plane uh, and he flew it acrobatically uh, and then and then crashed it intentionally from all we could gather. Uh, but he, it, it, he was never trained as a pilot, uh, but he was a serious video game player. And he stole an aircraft that was so difficult to operate that nobody thought to lock it because they figured nobody could fly this except for a trained pilot. But this guy with no formal training, he had learned how to fly it through a video game and he flew it very accurately and very impressively. Um, but to me, that's a signal of where we're going is that this is such a powerful learning medium. And that was all done through very inexpensive technology. It was a, you know, a software game he bought for Microsoft. Well, right. I mean, if you recall, after September 11th, uh, Microsoft didn't even put out their flight simulator for several years because they found out that that was what a lot of the terrorists used to kind of practice with. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, all right, let me back up here a little bit because, you know, that was a great conversation there. But uh, I want to make sure uh, that we do justice to to your book. And, and all this has been relevant conversation. But just for the listeners to kind of wrap their minds around uh, with everything we've been talking about, how would you define full spectrum thinking? So full spectrum thinking is the ability to think across gradients of possibility, to seek clarity while resisting certainty. So it's that ability to think in a spectrum, spectrum or spectral way. And the way I talk about it in the book is you want to continuously cycle from foresight to insight, to action. And foresight is all around us. Uh, there are these signals that that kind of demonstrate the future that hasn't fully played out yet, but is all around us beginning to take shape. These are what we call signals. And we have to become situation aware of those signals and then learn from that foresight. And the surprising thing here, you know, I've been doing this 30 years and the surprising thing is it's actually easier to look 10 years ahead than it is one or two years ahead. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, people say, how how can you do 10-year forecasting? I can't even do one or two-year forecasting. Well, the reason is because it's easier. You can actually look 10 years ahead, and especially in a crisis, look 10 years ahead and then work backwards. And I'll give you one specific example. 10 years from now, it's obvious. We're gonna have sensors everywhere. They're going to be very cheap. They're going to be connected. A lot of them will be. And some of them will be in our bodies. So in a group like yours, your podcast audience, a sophisticated audience, probably half of us 
are wearing a body sensor like Fitbit or Apple Watch or something like that. Ten years from now, with the same podcast, same similar group, all of us will have body sensors if we choose to wear them, and half of us will have embedded body sensors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's just obvious. So if you take that 10-year-out view and then work backwards and say, okay, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for our business? And, and then you can go forward. So instead of doing now, next, future in a kind of linear way, think of it as a cycle and go now, future, next, foresight, insight, action, and create that kind of cycle for us and then create a, a discipline for yourself to track signals and continuously go through that foresight, insight, action cycle, you'll be much more future ready in that world. And you'll never be future proof, but at least you'll be future ready. Yeah, no, as you were saying all that, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I mean, especially the, the sensors thing, you know, um, big fan of Mark Cuban and Mark Cuban is like, he's sensor, 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 sensor. Everything is about sensors with him. <laughs> but I remember reading an article not too long ago about a gentleman uh, in Silicon Valley uh, who he he's kind of a pioneer uh, is the word that they use in um, bio tattooing, I think is what they called it. Right. And, and uh, I don't know if you've seen or heard about this guy or whatever, but he's got these tattoos like if I remember right, he's diabetic, and instead of taking his insulin reading like everybody else does, he's got a tattoo uh, that measures his blood sugar, and it will like change colors to let him know what his blood sugar levels are. I mean, that's just amazing. That you know, we talked about Star Trek earlier, but that's Star Trek level stuff right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I'm optimistic about those things. I think the embedded or ingestibles or signals like that. Um, they're very powerful, and if you look, if you look ten years ahead in this world around health and wellness and sick care, uh, you you see that you have the formal discipline of healthcare, which in the United States basically means sick care, particularly end of life heroic healthcare, which we're very good at. But then think of Apple Watch and Fitbit and all that health and wellness, and the choices we make. Increasingly, we're going to be able to make much healthier choices and we're going to have much better data available and you know we own the data the people own the data but right now the medical establishment owns the data so that's really the the big breakthrough over the next decade it's called here in the valley um the the health data gold rush mm. the health data gold rush and if you don't believe that just google the phrase health data gold rush. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll be amazed at all the things going on to try to track that data, to make sense out of that data. And there is a fundamental question about who owns the data. And the answer is we do, you know, individuals do. But the reality is we don't. Right. <laughs> and right now, it's very hard for us to get access to our own data. So one of our scenarios looks 10 years ahead. And it's easy to do a scenario where Apple, Microsoft, and Google, and others have more access to your personal health data than your doctor does. Mm. It's hard to do a scenario where your doctor has more, ac more access to health data than Microsoft, Google, and, and Fitbit, and the others. 
that's really interesting <laughs> because it means that um, this in the, the human, the you know what we used to call the patient, is in the middle, um, and they're in a growing position of power. But there's a gold rush on, and it's crazy. You know, it's crazy because it's wild west out there right now. Well, no, it is, and and it's it's very interesting because you you pose what what you know we we see probably as one of the biggest threats to that right now uh when i think it's very inevitable like if people are being honest with themselves they'll they'll 100% agree with you this is the inevitability of where we're going i mean we mentioned covid what has happened since the covid crisis hit physical cash use has bottomed out and almost everybody now is using their card or they're using smart pay of some type but just a year ago uh, there were a, a large contingency of people who refused to use digital money because of security risks and concerns. With this bio data, the the, the bio gold rush, as you call it, um, I think a lot of people feel kind of that same way. I mean, that was one of the big arguments uh, with the the, the uh, digital medical records portion of of quote Obamacare. Was that it was going to open people up to more uh, HIPAA and GINA violations because their records were digitized and more easily hacked. So that concern about Big Brother watching and information getting hacked is probably the biggest barrier keeping people from embracing this. So how do we overcome that? You know, it's a big issue, uh, but you don't overcome it. Uh, it and... The principle here, the forecast here, is anything that can be distributed will be distributed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what it means is authority will be distributed and power will be distributed. So the kinds of data analytics that we're talking about here, they can be used in many different ways, including, including good ways and bad ways. It's a spectrum issue. And we have to be willing to live with that. It's not an either or choice. If we, if we choose to, uh, if you think of HIPAA laws today, in the interest of protecting privacy and data, it's very hard to get access to your own data. Right. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Uh, and, and, and yet it's understandable. But what we need to do is take more of an open attitude. And the COVID thing has been, I think, positive. If you look at in in some limited way, because the the innovation is happening faster for the vaccine, and it's happening in a more open way with more data exchange. So there are privacy and security issues. But I think the overriding innovation issue is how do we how do we use these digital media in Within, in the sense of data for good, not just data for bad. Um, and the data for good, for example, is if you think about future pandemics, the only way to deal with them is globally. The viruses don't understand national boundaries. Uh, and we've got to figure out a way to track the virus and to pattern and predict and to try to figure out ways of avoiding it. But it's a dilemma. It's something you, you can't solve it, Earl. And if we try to constrain it too much, we're going to get rid of the innovation side of it and, and create these, these kind of weird um, counterproductive unintended consequences like we've seen with HIPAA laws. Right. Well, no, and that's a good, that's a very good answer because, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, uh, 
you know, I, I've had my identity stolen uh, once several years ago. Uh, it was for being a good citizen and paying my state taxes back when I lived in South Carolina. The South Carolina Department of Revenue got hacked. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, but I was lucky because I have a good bank, uh, shameless plug for Navy Federal Credit Union. Uh, they, they alerted me to it. You know, they called me up. I get a, a phone call. It was two days before Thanksgiving. Did you just try to drain your bank account? Uh, absolutely. I absolutely did not. Oh, well, we didn't think so. So we prevented it. So we're going to go ahead and lock down your accounts, you know, all that good stuff. And when that first hit happened, yeah, I was a little freaked out. But, you know, now you hear about this hack and you hear about that hack and you hear about this hack. Uh, you know, some of my friends look at me like I'm giving up too much, uh, too much information or, or I don't care enough. But it's like, we live in a digital era. There's nothing that exists about me that everybody doesn't already know if they want to already. And and I think I, I like that level of comfortability. Now, you do still have to be smart about your identity and those sort of things. But it's kind of the cost of doing business, is, uh, like you said. Yeah, it's a VUCA world and we all have to get used to it. Um, the, the good news is there are now a number of service providers around identity theft and um, you know, those will get better too, but it's not going to get solved. This is not a problem that's solvable. Um, you can improve it. It's a dilemma that we all have to figure out how to manage and then and how much risk we're willing to take. So it's a risk assessment. Well, yeah. Um, so getting back to the book a little bit here, um, and just a, again, a reminder, uh, full spectrum thinking, how to escape boxes in a post-categorical future. Um, let's, let's actually talk about that second part of, of the title a little bit, So because I, I love the title of the book. It, it's very descriptive, which I like. You know, some, some books you read the title and you're like, yeah, what's that going to be about? This one, you know. <laughs> it, it's right there. Um, but when you say post-categorical future, what do you mean by that? So our brains are wired to categorize. And it's just a natural biological process. So our brains are there to protect us. So when we're in situations, our brains are always trying to predict what's next to keep us safe. And the way that our brains like to do it is they use categories that are already in our brain, and then we filter new experiences and we put them in old categories. And that works fine in a predictable, stable sort of a world. But in a VUCA world, in a VUCA world that's always changing and constantly in flux, it gets us in a lot of trouble because those simplistic categories get us in a lot of trouble. So what we need is more flexibility. And, you know, I'm stretching it a little in the sense that categories won't go away completely. Categories are fine as long as they're accurate and as long as they're fair. But so often they are neither accurate nor fair. And those are the kind of categories that are in jeopardy, and they ought to be. So we can think about experiences on a full spectrum instead of just categorizing something as good or bad or black or white or whatever. We're, we're the simplistic categories. There's, those are the ones that are going to be challenged and should be challenged. And we can get ahead of that right now. At the moment, full spectrum thinking is a competitive advantage 
it'll help you get prepared for the future. Um, five years from now, 10 years from now, it'll be price of entry. You know, we'll all have to be doing full spectrum thinking or you won't get to play it. It'll, it'll be how you have to get in the game. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, 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 you know, with what you're talking about categories wise, it's again, one of the things we do here, we, uh, at the leadership phalanx, we we talked about that that tie between leadership, diversity, and inclusion, and and a lot of what you just talked about there is exactly how we describe what biases are. Exactly, exactly. So when I was in graduate school in my PhD program at Northwestern, I learned about confirmation mm-hmm. bias, which is essentially that it's easier to believe something you already believe. <laughs> so when you're looking at data. Uh, you look for things you already believe. What's happening now, and the term that's used in neuroscience and cognitive science is my side bias. So we're only listening to Fox, or we're only listening to CNN, or we're only listening to a certain political or a certain um, whatever view, certain religious or political view, and we just don't listen to the other side. So it's pre-sorting, it's pre-categorizing. That's really dangerous in a time like this, because in a VUCA world, the categories don't work as well anymore. Uh, And yet, again, our brains want certainty. They want categories we already understand, but that's not the kind of future we're moving into. So it's a real source of tension. Uh, as we try to live our lives in a daily way. And people who um, want that certainty and go for an easy solution, they're taking a very big risk and we're all paying the price for that. Yeah, no, exactly. And and you were right in there because, uh, you know, I think that's what we have a hard time getting a lot of folks to wrap their minds around is the word prejudice really just means to prejudge. You have prejudged something based off of a past experience. We all have prejudices. We all prejudge things. And what I like about your your line of thinking here is you really, that's not bad, uh, which it's it's not. It's how humans have survived to, to evolve to where we are now because of some of these biases and prejudices against oh, let's not go pet the the lion on the head because the lion will eat us. Uh, But we're changing, what I like about this is when you talk about changing the categories of of what we're judging and how we're judging it. And uh, when I look at this and, and I try to get that 10 years down the road like you're talking about, if we can get more people thinking like this, this is why I'm excited about this full spectrum thinking. I mean, when we start changing those categories and putting them towards things that really matter now, we're going to be able to unlock a lot of potential in the world. That's right. Definitely. definitely. And if you think future back, it's pretty obvious what we need to do. So 10 years from now, it's obvious we're going to be a majority minority country, or at least in most parts of the country and in many parts of the world. And not only that, um, David Hayes Bautista at the Center for Latino Health and Culture at UCLA, what he calls this is beyond ethnicity. And the clear variable he talks about is intermarriage. There's so much intermarriage now that 10 years from now, it's going to be very hard to categorize people by ethnicity or by race. Uh, And his point is ethnicity and race becomes more important, but harder to measure. And that's the reality of this more fluid thinking, 
about race, about gender, about ethnicity, more of a full spectrum thinking approach. And that's how we can engage. And the good news is that it, it, that's also going to be more innovative because we do see a correlation, a definite correlation between diversity and innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the other thing I like about it, and my, my partner, he hadn't had a chance to to put a name to it, but now he does. He may not know it yet because I don't think he's had a chance to read the book. But he used to always say, uh, so he, he's, uh, my partner's a black man. And we talk about, uh, we've talked about the, the term African-American quite a bit. And he looked at me one day and he says, uh, Breon, you know, because military guys, we always use the last name. He <laughs> said, I don't understand why white people don't like us using the term African-American. He goes, could you imagine if, if you all did the same thing? Like if on the census, it wasn't just white, but it was Irish-American, German-American, English-American, Scandinavian-American. He goes, that very first census, the idea of a majority would just go away. Everybody would be in a minority group. I was thinking, well, that's an interesting way to look at it, and that's recategorization, kind of what you're talking about here, right? Well, Dr. Johansson, uh, we're coming up on 45, actually, we're a little over 45 minutes here. This conversation has been uh, fantastic and kind of flown by. Um, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to really hit on yet that you would like the listeners to make sure that they, uh, they take away from this? So I think the notion of signals is a practical takeaway. And William Gibson, the science fiction author, said this best. He said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Mm -hmm. So the future is all around us. And we call those signals. And I talk about it in the book about how to track them and how to look for patterns. But you can set up a daily discipline in your life of writing down those signals and categorizing them. What's the signal and what's the, uh, what's the so what? So what, you know, what is the signal and then, and then the so what? And do a discipline for yourself. Or if you're a leader of a group, do a discipline for your team. And, and then watch for the patterns. And that'll help you kind of jumpstart your ability to think future back and your ability to develop your clarity, but moderate your certainty and figure out just how to, how to engage with this, this very uncertain future. Mm. No, I, I like that. Um, and, and again, folks, uh, I highly, highly recommend you go pick up a copy of, of Full Spectrum Thinking how to Escape Boxes in a Post-Categorical Future. Uh, and I'm going to let you in on a little Easter egg here, right? Because talk about thinking on the next level. You know, I get a lot of books. Uh, one of the things that's kind of a perk of being a podcaster is when uh, there's a book out, a lot of times the, the, the uh, publicity agency that contacts me and sets things up, they'll send me a copy of the book to, to read. Uh, and, and so, you know, I've got a a lot of books since I started doing this, this podcast. And, and I'm a big fan of design and I've, I've had some books uh, that have just had some beautiful designs, but this is the first book that I have received where I have to give props to the dust cover <laughs> uh, because, you know, I looked at it and like the, the artwork and all that stuff is great. And I like the, the kind of bio about Dr. Johansson here and all that. But then, you know, I took it off the book so it wasn't kind of rattling around during this conversation. And lo and behold, on the inside, 
is this beautiful graphic that talks about uh, kind of the three parts of the book, if you will. And I'm sitting here thinking that right there is full spectrum thinking because the no part of this dust cover uh, it went unused. And this is something I could see just kind of like hanging on the wall next to my bookshelf to to remind me of of what this book has taught me. So, uh, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you I'm glad you discovered that. I've done that for the, my past few books, and it's. To me, it's always the inside of the book jacket has always been wasted space. You know, it's usually blank. Right. So I talked my publisher into doing this, and it's basically a summary of the book. And it is designed, Earl, to do exactly what you said, to post it or frame it and put it up on a wall. Yeah, no, I love it. That's that's good stuff. Um, well, Dr. Johansson, so let's say, and I'm hoping that this is the case, let's say that the listeners have become full-spectrum thinking believers and they're wanting to find out more about you, maybe get in touch with you. Uh, what is a good way for them to do that? Well, the book has a number of links in it. Um, the Institute for the Future, you can just go on our website. It's Institute for the Future, I-F-T-F dot O-R-G. We're an independent nonprofit. We do training programs on how to teach like, a, how, to, how to be a futurist, essentially, how to think like a futurist. Um, and we've got links to a lot of the things that I mentioned there. And there's a, a site specifically for the book. And, you know, this is the third book in a trilogy that I've done. First book was about skills. The second book about leadership literacies or practices. And this book's all about mindset. And you can see the links to those books as well. Oh, outstanding. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to check out those other two books because this one uh yeah, yeah, this one was great. I mean, I haven't had a chance to read it verbatim, cover to cover. Uh, I've definitely had a chance to to skim a good portion of it, and and I love it. So, listeners, go out, get a copy. You'll you'll not uh, be disappointed. I promise you. Uh, well, Doctor Johansson, again, thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time and conversation. This has just been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing, Earl. Oh, I appreciate it, and listeners. Uh, I've already kind of given you your call to action, but I'm going to say it again just so it sinks in. Go get a copy of the book. Uh, you will thank me for it, and you will thank Dr. Johansson for writing it. Uh, I will have the links to to uh, uh, to get in contact and check out the website and find the other books. All that's going to be in the show notes. You can just click on it and go right there. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, thank you again for getting out there and rating, reviewing, and sharing out the shows. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of great uptick uh, now that we've kind of caught traction on Anchor. Uh, so thank you for that. Keep doing that. That uh, helps all the various algorithms get the show boosted up there so guests like Dr. Johansson and, and his message uh, can get spread far and wide. So please keep that up. Uh, with that, thank you for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation, don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. 
Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.